If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a physical copy of the scriptures with you, you can use your phone. I won't judge you. Because I do it also, so I can't judge. That would be hypocritical. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And if that freaks you out a little bit, you're like, wait, I thought we already did chapter 3. I thought we were finally making some semblance of progress. Fear not. We are in chapter 4, but I'm going to start reading for today in chapter 3 at verse 14. This is Paul's prayer. We'll get it to where he goes. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Oh Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this word. Thank you for this beautiful and good calling. Just pray that you would bring it to life today as we learn from it. Lord, bring transformation by your spirit. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Nobody was asking, but I'll answer anyway. Goodwill Hunting is probably my favorite movie of all time. If anybody's seen it, I, I'm not even sure I can, like, in good faith, really strongly recommend it from the front. There's a lot of language, just some things. But it is a brilliant movie if you haven't seen it. It's briefly, it's Matt Damon and Ben Affleck when they were really young, if those names mean anything to you. It's kind of their coming out party in Hollywood, and the story is that Matt Damon's character named Will, his name is Will Hunting, is grown up in a tough area of Boston. He's grown up in South Boston, this really rough neighborhood. And he and his best friend, Chucky, which is Ben Affleck, they've arrived in their 20s, and they're working in construction, kind of doing the things that guys from South Boston generally do. Working construction, going out at night, doing their thing, getting in a bunch of fights. It's great. It's great cinema. Um, and the, the, only, the only twist in the story is that Will Hunting, Matt Damon's character, is an absolute genius. So he's grown up in a rough neighborhood. He's working construction. He's doing all this stuff. He has a brain that is like top 5% in the world. And so the story ends up finding Matt Damon. He's, he's doing custodial work as part of his uh, probation from jail. He's doing uh, 
custodial work at MIT, one of the most prestigious technical colleges in America. And while he's doing that, he's kind of having fun answering these tough equations, basically, that nobody can answer on the board. Long story short, he gets discovered as being the absolute genius that he is. But the whole thrust of the story is that all throughout, there's this calling on his life because he's this absolute genius. He has a brain that nobody else has. There's this calling on his life that's enormous. But really, he's, he's not quite sure he wants it. Or at least he's afraid to step into all that that calling represents in his life. He's got a lot of things, a lot of demons that he's got to work through. And the whole thrust of the story is Will Hunting really working through what it means to be somebody from South Boston with his background and his friends and, and all this stuff, but who has this incredible brain and calling on his life for something more. And he goes through all this stuff and it ends up leading to this big climactic scene right near the end. And it's him and his best friend Chucky who's Ben Affleck. And they're at the construction site, and on the job, they're, they're drinking and smoking, which is a real interesting move, on the job, but they're like, taking a break, and they're having this conversation. This incredibly powerful scene and speech that his best friend Chucky, Ben Affleck, gives. And they have this back and forth, talking about, oh, you know, in 20 years. And Will Hunting, Matt Damon's character, basically says, you know, I, what are you talking about? In, in 20 years, like, I'll still be here. I'll be doing this. I'll, we'll be raising our kids together here in South Boston. And we'll be doing this the rest of our lives. And Ben Affleck's character says, no, 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 no. Like, don't you dare. If you're still here in 20 years, I'll kill you. This is basically what he says. And he says, it'd be an insult to me. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. And it's this moment in the film where Affleck, his best friend, this character finally stands up to Will. And it's this iconic speech, and he says this. I'll, I'll read his quote from his speech. After he's told him, you've got to get out of here and do something greater. And Matt Damon's character's like, no, you don't know that. And this is a quote from, from Ben Affleck's character. He says, I don't know that. But let me tell you what I do know. Every day, I come by your house, and I pick you up. And we go out. We have a few drinks, we have a few laughs, and it's great. But you know what the best part of my day is? It's for about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb to when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. You just left. I don't know much, but I know that. And this might sound like a cold, unloving speech from a friend to another. But what's so powerful about this scene is not only is it a scene of a friend having a larger vision and picture for a friend's life than even he has. But what makes me cry every time I watch this is that these are real friends. This is a friendship that runs thick. These guys have been through it all, blood, sweat, and tears together. And you know they almost never talk to each other like this. Their relationship normally revolves around making jokes at each other's expense, watching sports, mouthing off to rich snobs and getting into fights. This is kind of their relationship with each other. And having fun with the incredible gifts that Will has in his brain. But this speech is a profound moment of Ben Affleck's character frankly being too good of a friend to allow the person that you love to go on like this. Basically it's, I love you too much to let you miss this. So the hard word has to be said in this moment. 
I love you too much to let you go on like this. The calling on your life is too special. It's too transformative for you to go on living like you haven't received it. And I think what I love so much about this scene and this thrust of conversation, oh, I forgot I put a little picture of uh, Goodwill Hunting in there for you if, you, if you're interested. Uh, I think what's so, what's so moving about this scene and the thrust of this conversation is that honestly, this type of conversation should probably occur a lot more in our lives than it does. We should probably be having these types of conversations on a fairly regular basis. Healthy versions of these conversations, of course, with friends, from friends, for the sake of friends. But I think we so often shy away from these kinds of conversations because we're afraid. We're afraid of confrontation. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing, wording it the wrong way, hurting the feelings. We're afraid of the reaction we might get, the effect that it might have on our friendship. Whereas Paul in the New Testament, to bring it back to Ephesians, is just someone who will not shy away from these kinds of conversations. Paul is someone who will not shy away from these tough conversations. And it's funny because people often struggle with Paul. I don't know if you've ever met people, or maybe you're one, who struggles with Paul, finds him abrasive, even unlikable. I've, I've heard many a person talk about how if they knew Paul in real life, they probably wouldn't like him very much. He's abrasive and on, almost offensive at times. But I think that much of where that sentiment is coming from is really just a cultural misunderstanding. Because Paul, when it comes down to it, was really just a friend who was unwilling to let you miss the point while he knew the point and stood idly by. He couldn't do it. He would not do that. And I get it. I've grown up here in Vancouver. And I think that in Vancouver culture, we're trained to actually prefer to stand idly by and suffer the consequences rather than have the tough conversation and call it out. We'd rather do that than rustle feathers. And I know that this is part of some of our national cultures as well. It runs very deep. But Paul, over and over again, looked at the lives of his dear friends, people that he loved so much, and he thought, there's more here. There's more here. You're missing it. You're settling. You're falling back. There are unhealthy patterns here. That's just frankly wrong. And he'd see these things and he would not stand idly by. He would see the sentiment, the calling on your life is too special, too transformative for you to go on living like you haven't received it. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a church that pursues these conversations with grace in 2024. Because this is the exact tone of Paul's major pivot at this crux moment in his letter to the Ephesian church. Like we've laid out all series, and I took time last Sunday to reiterate it. Ephesians lays out in two distinct sections. You have chapters 1 to 3, and you have chapters 4 to 6. It's cleanly and perfectly laid out in two distinct sections. In chapters 1 to 3, you have what can be described as or called the good news. Just a bunch of beautiful good news. So much good work on identity, who we are in Christ Jesus, what we have received in Christ Jesus. And the second half, four to six, is the follow-up, good advice. Or the first half, one to three, is our identity, who we are in Christ. And the second half, four to six, is the implications of that new identity. The first half is the wonder of grace, like we talked about last week. The second half is the walk of grace. 
The first half presents an alternative reality, an alternative reading of reality. And the second half provides the everyday dynamics of this alternative reading of reality. And after he wraps up that first section by pausing and interceding on behalf of the church in prayer, which we talked about and practiced together last Sunday, chapter 4, verse 1, the first verse of this new chapter, represents the pivot. It is the pivot moment. This is the big shift. And in reality, this first verse of chapter 4 is the thesis statement of the entire letter. This is the thesis statement of the whole letter. So when Paul writes, well, I wanted to help you out with slides today. Well, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Or most translations have it framed as, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And the reason I mention that translation is that it's largely understood in New Testament translation and scholarship but the therefore that starts chapter 4, verse 1, the therefore I urge you, is really responding to the entire work of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Usually when we see therefore, if you've heard me preach enough times, I'll bring it up. Whenever we see a therefore, we always have to look at what immediately comes before it to figure out what that writer is talking about, what's the context. But in this particular case, the therefore at the beginning of chapter 4 seems to be referencing the entire argumentation and story of the first three chapters of Ephesians. This whole good news, this whole wonder of grace, this whole identity and calling that we've received in Christ Jesus, the thesis statement, therefore, live a life worthy of this calling you've received, is really a direct response to everything that Paul has said so far. Yes, this is beautiful good news. And it's been said that the therefore at the beginning of chapter 4, has actually been present implicitly all throughout the letter, right from the very beginning. We can read that, therefore, into the whole letter right from the very beginning. I'll show you some examples. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How he starts the letter. Therefore, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. Therefore, in Him we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins. Therefore, live your life in a manner worthy. We have obtained an inheritance. Our future is secure. Therefore, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our inheritance. Therefore, we were dead in our transgressions and sins and He made us alive together with Christ. Therefore, live your life in such a way. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Therefore, Christ has come to dwell in our hearts through faith. Therefore, we are being filled with all the fullness of God. Therefore, and God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Therefore, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. This therefore has been implicit all throughout the book of Ephesians. 
Walk in a manner worthy of all that you now are in Jesus. Walk in a manner worthy of who you now are in Jesus. And this walk, this worthy life that Paul's talking about, gets really practical really quick for Paul. We're going to see it in the next few chapters. It gets very practical real quick. It gets practical in how we parent, in how we treat our parents, in our relationships, in how we treat those who are under us, how we honor leadership. It affects how we are employees and bosses. It impacts what we watch and what we say, the conversations that we take part in and don't, and so many other things. The list really does go on and on. It impacts everything. The point is, live worthy of the calling. Live worthy of the truth of Ephesians 1 to 3. The calling on your life is too special, too transformative for you to go on living like you haven't received it. This is the reality of Ephesians 4 verse 1. And it's really important to emphasize as we live in this pivot moment today, as we live today in this thesis statement that's going to carry us through the rest of the letter, it's important to point out that Paul is not saying Paul is not saying, measure up, measure up, try to win God's favor by doing all of these things. Because again, the first three chapters of Ephesians makes it very clear we already have God's favor. So living worthy, as Paul writes, is not about trying to get God's attention or trying to make God like us. It's not that. It's perhaps better said... Walk in a way that fits the calling that you've received. Or walk in a way that makes sense as family members of the living God. Because, to be honest, if we've really grasped the first three chapters, and I think we took enough time in it to hopefully get it, if we've really grasped the first three chapters, this thesis statement in 4 verse 1 honestly shouldn't need to be said. It should go without, without saying. We shouldn't need urging. We should already be motivated. We should be deeply, deeply motivated by the truth of the first three chapters. And we should laugh at the mere thought of clinging to things of our past. We should laugh at the thought of clinging to the construction job in South Boston when there's something so much better waiting for us. But as the next three chapters go, it may sound to some like a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts, like impossible burdens. And it can feel overwhelming. That is, unless the things that Paul's about to say are seen as what will and should stem naturally from our new identity in Christ. My constant reminder as we read the rest of this letter is and will be that it doesn't need to feel burdensome. Because we're not doing any of these things to get approval. We're doing them from approval. We're doing them from approval. We're not doing these things to somehow get God's attention or look impressive to him or anyone else. We're doing these things in light of what we've been beautifully called into. And in light of who has called us into it. And it really should be a joy and a throwing aside of things that pale in comparison to what we're longing for and moving into. The calling that we've been given. 
When I was a teenager and playing a lot of soccer, I remember there was this one team and this one coach that was like the pinnacle. It was the pinnacle team, he was the pinnacle coach, and I was desperate to play for his team. I was desperate to make that team, but it was, it was gonna be tough to make. I remember I tried for a couple of years and got cut, real painful moments, real humbling moments, but I tried so hard to make this, this guy's team. His name was Mr. Azzy, we called him. He was this gruff Italian man, Italian Catholic. He was a yeller. If you made his team and you made a mistake on the field, you were getting yelled at a lot. Developed thick skin, but I wanted so badly to be on his team, I knew he was the best. And he was absolutely the best. And I remember feeling like I was willing to do anything that was asked of me if I were to be on that team. Whatever it took to be on that team, whatever was required of me if I was on it, I was willing to do anything. Whatever it looks like to exist on that team, I'll do it. I'll pretend I know or care anything about Italian culture. If that's what it takes, I'll do it. And I remember I made the team, I got yelled at a lot that year, and ironically I, I had to do a lot of things to make being on that team work. We played on Sundays and I skipped church for the whole time I was on that team, and yet here I stand before you. But I remember just feeling like I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be on this guy's team. He's actually now... This is just a tangent. He's now in the BC Sports Hall of Fame. You can find a whole mural about him if that interests you. But I remember just feeling like whatever it takes, I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to be on this team. And I bring that up and I think of it in this way because here we are, we're invited to be on the team of the living God. We're called to be his people. We're called to be his representatives to wear his jersey, if you will. But it's actually a whole lot more than that, and so much deeper and fuller than just being on his team. We're called into being part of his family. And one way I love thinking about it is community around the table. We're going to share, like Soma talked about, we're going to share dinner at the Sunday table next week. And this is genuinely why that practice is so foundational to our heart and vision for our church. It's because as we come together around the table, we are gathering as a group of people who never deserved to be sat at the table of God. We're people who've been lifted there and given a seat. We're, we're people who've been seated in seats that we didn't deserve, and yet here we are. And at the table of God, as we're seated there, there's no shame. There's complete access. Complete access to know the voice of the Father, to know His loving eyes of approval, to know His heart, to know Him closely, and to know that we belong there at the table. And how incredible is that? How incredible is it? We've been called from wherever we were to be His people, to belong to Him, to know Him, to represent Him, to be part of His family. That is the call. And we've seen Paul multiple times in Ephesians pray that the church would get it, would grasp the call. Like, yes, these are incredible intellectual truths, but it's an entirely different thing to know it in our hearts in a way that transforms us and moves us. And Paul's prayed multiple times that the church would grasp this call. And with Paul, that's my prayer for us as a church as we enter into these next three chapters with this thesis statement, with this call. 
I'm just praying with Paul that every week as we're in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, that we would just experience the work of the Holy Spirit, reminding us of the call that we've received. Reminding us that we've been called out of darkness into light. Reminding us that, we've been, that there's nothing we ever need to do to get God's attention because we already have it. Reminding us that there's no day that we're not worthy to be sat at his table because of what he's done to make that possible. And when we get that, when we understand that in our hearts, it changes everything about the reality of existence that we live in. When we get that, when we understand the new reality in which we live, it changes everything about the practical outcomes of how we live. Intriguing and controversial Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, who I'm not endorsing by quoting, I just want that to be known. He was asked not long ago if he believes in God. And he actually gets asked this quite often because he wouldn't claim to be a Christian, but he talks a lot about the Bible and speaks well about the Bible and unpacks these things. So he gets asked these types of questions quite often. He was asked recently if he believes in God. And in this recent interview, his answer was fascinating. He said, one answer I give is no, but I'm afraid he probably exists. Or I say, I act as if God exists. And listen to this closely, there's something beautiful here. He says, but there's a real stumbling block there. Because there's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. There's no limit to what would happen if you acted like God existed. I love it. I love it because there's a fear of the Lord present in that statement. There's an understanding intellectually that if God is who he claims to be, and if God has done what we claim he's done, then there's no end to what he's worthy of. There's no obedience to him that doesn't make perfect sense. Do we understand? If God is who he claims to be, there's nothing of this world that it doesn't make complete sense to throw off for his sake. There's nothing. Because of what we've received in him, it makes perfect sense to give everything else up for his sake. I mean, just every kind of obedience and worship and love for him and throwing aside of every comfort makes total sense because we have it all in him. We have everything in him. What would be too much attention on God? Is that a thing? No, it's not. What would be too much attention on the living God? What would be too much worship? Like what's overkill on worship to the living God? What would be too much obedience? Could that be a thing? What would be too much submission to the living God? And the answers are obviously that there's no end. There's no end to what he's worthy of. And we're called to represent Jesus well. We're meant to show him off to the world. We're meant to be image bearers of the living God by the power of his spirit in Jesus' name. Broken? Yes. Humble? Deeply. Imperfect? For sure. But we're called to be ambassadors, to represent him well. And when we understand our calling, it changes our lives. It changes our walk. And this is what Paul's getting at in 4 verse 1. And so again, Paul urges us to live worthy of the calling. Live worthy of the calling. Not to try to get God to like you, 
Not to try to prove to God that you're worth using. Live worthy of what is already in place. Live worthy of what is already true of you in Christ Jesus. Represent the family well. The calling on your life is too special, too transformative for you to go on living like you haven't received it. This is the urging of Paul. So that's just a little bit of a setup for the weeks to come. And I hope that it can serve as a helpful framework for all that we're going to be looking at in the rest of Ephesians. But for just a few closing minutes today, I want to look briefly at the first things that spill out of Paul's heart as he thinks about what it means to live worthy of the calling. We read it earlier. He says a number of things, but I've broken it up into three things that touch on to close. The first one is be completely humble and gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. It's the first thing that spills out of Paul's heart when he talks about living worthy of the calling that we've received. Be completely humble and gentle. And to that, as God's accepted and called people, we say, of course. Of course. In light of all that we've learned in the first three chapters, is there any other way to live? Is there any other option but to live completely humble? It's not as rhetorical a question as we'd like to we'd like to think. We've been called by the God who exists, who exists in perfection and beauty. Above all, set apart, but who came down to the lowest place. Literally, his self-revelation is him coming down to the lowest of the low places. And he gives himself, gives his life as the ransom for many. This is our example. This is the God we're following. John 13 presents a picture of of Jesus kneeling down and performing the grotesque task of washing his disciples' feet. I was reading reading this story uh, to my daughter this week in her little kid's Bible. And this little kid's Bible really went in on how disgusting the feet of the disciples would have been. Like, he spent a strange amount of time making sure we knew just how nasty their feet would be. I thought it was oddly specific, talked about animals and their droppings and all that kind of stuff. This is strangely specific, but I guess it helps paint the picture. It brought the story home for me in a whole new way this week. But Jesus is down on his knees washing his disciples' disgusting feet. This is the God that we've been called by. You could say, these are the family rules. This is the culture of God's family. To serve the least of these, to give ourselves over, to never lord ourselves over. I mean, why would we, right? If God himself didn't, and it's him that we serve, of course we could never. And already we can see that Paul's urging He's urging the people to be humble and gentle in light of the good news of the first three chapters that he's already written. It's a natural response, or at least it should be. Intellectually, it is a natural response. Like, of course, how could we do anything else? There's a beautiful prophecy in Isaiah, and it speaks about Jesus and his ministry, but more broadly speaks about God and his heart for us. And it says, quote, a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I love that. It's in Isaiah 42. And it beautifully reveals the gentleness of our God and his nature. That our Father's nature is to come 
to things that most of us or all of us would just toss aside as useless or like, there's no fixing that. So I'm going to chuck it aside. But our God is careful. He's gentle. He's patient and he's kind. He doesn't just go, well, there's no point working with this one. They're too far gone. And praise God he doesn't do this. But the nature of our fathers, he comes to the thing that most would say is too far gone, and he breathes on it. He breathes his life onto it. He brings life. He fixes. He doesn't just blow up and start over. He redeems. He heals. This is the nature of our God. And what could it possibly mean for us? It means we're humble. We're gentle. What's worthy of the king who bends down to wash the disgusting feet of his friends? What's worthy of the God who breathes on the smoldering wick and doesn't toss aside a broken reed? What's worthy of that? To walk worthy of the call, to be humble and gentle. To never use our power or position to destroy or to tear down, but to renew, to build up, and to heal. I urge you, live worthy, says Paul. Be humble and gentle. The second thing that he says, live worthy of the call you've received after saying be humble and be gentle. He says be patient, bearing with one another in love. And again, it might sound repetitive at this point. In light of the good news of chapters 1 to 3, it's like, of course. Of course, it makes total sense. Be patient with one another. Be patient with those who reject you. Bear with one another in love, even when it's very difficult. Don't hold on to bitterness. There's a picture in the Gospels, right before Jesus is arrested and crucified, where he's drawing near to the city of Jerusalem. And he gets to this place where he can see the whole city. He's looking over the whole city. And as he looks over the city of Jerusalem, the picture that we see in, in, in this gospel account is Jesus weeps over it. He weeps over the city. And this picture is incredibly telling about the God that we serve. This is the living God made manifest in humankind. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He weeps. And in doing this, he reveals that God weeps over us. He weeps over our brokenness, that God weeps over people's turning away from him. And in this picture, Jesus says, how long have I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing? How long have I wanted to bring you into my safety, to bring you into who I am, but you rejected me? And he's not like we might be in this situation, like I might be in this situation. Like, okay, so, so it's your fault. I gave you a chance. I was here, I was waiting, I was calling you, I gave you a chance. It's your fault. He's not like that. He's not like you're going to get what's coming to you. I gave you a chance and you scorned me. That might be my response. It's not his. Now in that moment, Jesus is weeping. He's weeping over his people. He feels the pain of rejection. And his response is to weep for those people who have rejected him. And what's important about this is that it reveals that our God, the God who has called us to be part of his family, the God who has called us by name, is a God who has never given up on humanity. In all of humanity's turning away, he's never given up on them. 
And he's never given up on you and he's never given up on me. We talked about this two weeks ago when describing love in 1 Corinthians. But God is a long-suffering God. Remember the quote from 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffereth long, and our God is love. It's in our Father's nature to be long-suffering, to play the long game, to continue to hold out His arms to the people who have wronged Him time and time again. And it likewise, then, is the calling of His people to continue to hold out our hands and our hearts to the people that reject us and mock us and turn away from us. It's in our God's heart. It's in His family's culture. That's the family we're called into. To love, to extend grace and patience, to bear with one another. And so again, we respond to this calling with an of course. Of course, in light of the calling I've received to be part of that family, led by that God who's doing these things, does bitterness make any sense? Does unforgiveness make any sense? No, there's no room for it. It just doesn't fit at all. Look at who we're living for. Look at who has called us. It's that God who's weeping over the city that's rejected him. Third, the third thing that Paul says, and this is the last one. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Work hard. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I mean, full messages could be given on each and every one of these, completely granted. But our Ephesians series is already going to be plenty long enough, and so we need to keep moving. But of course, make every effort to maintain unity. Of course. Of course. Fight for unity through the bond of peace. Of course. Because we're living in response to the God who literally died to bring unity. We're living in response to the one who died to break down barriers, like Paul talked about earlier in Ephesians. To break down barriers so we can all be one together. Our God literally died for these things. He bodily gave everything, every effort. He went to the ultimate end to, to bring unity. So of course, we make every effort to maintain unity and peace. What's too much bodily effort? What's too much work for those who've been called by the living God to represent Him when it comes to fighting for unity? What's too much? What's overkill? I urge you, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the call. And I speak it over you today, friends. Walk in a way that makes sense. Walk in a way that makes sense in light of all of the good news of the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's the exhortation that carries through all the rest of this book that we're going to be in. Walk in a way that fits the call. That's an appropriate response to the good news of the first three chapters. Daryl Johnson wrote about this particular verse in this passage. And I just want to read it. I think, it, I think it's worth reading. I'm going to read this little section that Daryl Johnson wrote on this. He said, Paul is saying, realize what has taken place. Realize that you are now living in a new reality that changes your old reality. So enter in. Get with the program. We now have a new address. In Christ, in the heavenly places. We now live in a new neighborhood, adopted in the family of God, where redemption and forgiveness reign. We now live in a new country, where the dead in sin are made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ. We now live in a new universe, 
where His Spirit is at work, coming into the very center of our being to make it possible for Christ to live there. So enter in. Start to move around in this new reality. This is what the rest of Ephesians is all about. Enter in and live in this new reality in a way that makes sense in light of it. It's about learning to move around and to live in and in light of our new identity in Christ Jesus. This reality that we've been brought into, that we've been called into, we've been saved into by the goodness and the power and the choosing of the living God. This is the rest of the Ephesians. I urge you, live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And I want to close today with this. And actually, I'll invite Stephanie up at this point because we're going to respond with a song. I want to close with this. There's a beautiful verse in a personal favorite song that we sing at church. In full disclosure, to let Stephanie off the hook, I asked her if she would lead this song, but she didn't know it. So she's going to try. But we all need to sing. Because I feel bad, okay? But it's a personal favorite song we sing in church. And the verse, the verse goes like this. It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Essentially, it's saying if I had everything, like literally everything, Somehow it was all my possession. The whole world was my possession. Like I owned the mountains. I owned all the real estate in Vancouver. Might be something. In the world. I owned all the real estate in the whole world. And somehow it all belonged to me. And I was able to bring it all as an offering to God. It would still be a measly, small offering compared to what Jesus is worthy of. Because love so amazing, so divine, the call that we've received, what we've been brought into by the Father, demands my soul, demands your life. It calls you live worthy of the calling. Just walk in a way that makes sense. Because the call of Jesus is so beautiful. And it demands all that we have and all that we are. So walk in that identity. Let me pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, our response to a word like this, our response to the calling we've received is just gratitude. It's thanksgiving. It's an outpouring of praise and worship. Lord, I'm reminded and struck that what is, what is too much? Worship and praise, adoration and obedience. What is overkill when it comes to taking you seriously and following you with all that we are and all that we have? It's ludicrous to even think about something being overkill, something being too much, when we think about who you are and what you have done for us. When we think about the kingdom that you've invited us into, the table that we're allowed to sit at, the family that we've been invited into being a part of, that we've been adopted into, that we're heirs of an inheritance. Lord, may our response, Holy Spirit, do a transforming work in us. May our response just be full submission and obedience to you. May we live lives that somehow, someway make sense. Somehow, someway 
fitting in light of all that you've given to us. Lord, begin that work in us. Thank you so much for the invitation into your family. Use us, mold us, take all of us. We lay it all down in your feet, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Would you stand and let's respond by singing to you. Thank <laughs> you.